uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for quite some time as a church. And if you're just joining us for the first time, you should know the, the Gospel of Mark is driven forward with one central question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so if you're asking that in some way, shape, or form, the Gospel of Mark is a great place to start. And today, we enter into one of the most iconic scenes of the Christian faith, the Last Supper. The Last Supper. And even if you're not familiar with the pages of scriptures, uh, it's likely you have some sense about this event. You might be familiar with Da Vinci's uh, rendition of The Last Supper or another artist's portrayal throughout history. Uh, modern artists are even casting their lot in this. There's a Canadian artist, Dina Goldstein, and she brings it home closer to us uh, in her work called The Last Supper, East Vancouver. And so she's depicting what she thinks The Last Supper looked like in Hipster East Van. And, and it gives you a good sense of, of what was going on. Uh, Jesus and his closest disciples are sharing uh, a meal together in an intimate setting, and it's their last meal together, and Jesus makes this announcement, one of you is going to betray me. Popular culture often uh, reinterprets this and likes to cast their lot. Uh, Lost has done this. Uh, House has done this. The Simpsons, The Sopranos, and, and one of my favorites, uh, The Expendables. Now, clearly, they're not understanding what's actually taking place at this table. But perhaps we're, we're drawn to it, even in popular culture, because we can readily identify with the pain of betrayal. You see, betrayal, it's not possible unless there's some level of trust. Like if your postman steals your mail, that's going to hurt because you trust him to deliver your mail. But it's not going to hurt as much as if a close and trusted friend betrays you. The depths of betrayal depend on the depths of intimacy. And have you ever wondered, I know it might be an obvious question, but have you ever wondered, why does betrayal hurt as much as it does? Well, here's why. Neuroscience has discovered that the same part of our brain that processes physical pain also processes emotional and relational pain. So whether you've been physically harmed or relationally betrayed, your brain is processing it in the exact same place in an exact same way. And anything that might trigger us to remember our betrayal, even just remembering it, to our brain, it can be like experiencing it all over again for the first time. Studies have even shown uh, that just the thought of being betrayed, just thinking about it right now, of someone betraying you, can make you become more suspicious and guarded toward others. Betrayal has the power to completely rewire who we are. And the Last Supper, it's written in the ink of betrayal. Uh, if you're paying close attention to the reading, uh, we have an A, B, A, B, A pattern today. Obviously, you saw that, and it goes like this, betrayal, Passover, betrayal, Passover, betrayal. And betrayal, it leads all the way to the cross, and yet... Jesus keeps this last supper. Even though he's being betrayed, he doesn't withdraw. He actually offers himself even more. And so there's one big idea I want to explore this morning. Jesus has set the most extravagant table for us. We only have to take a seat. Jesus has set the most extravagant table for us. We only have to take a seat. So I invite you to uh, open up your Bible to Mark chapter 14. 
uh, starting in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, everything will also be on the screen. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of the Passover uh, of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, uh, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and prepared the Passover. Fun fact, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Now, if this is a newsflash to you, uh, it's very important to understand this because this entire passage takes place in the context of the Passover. And so if we don't understand uh, some of Israel's customs and beliefs about the Passover, we're going to miss the entire point of this passage. You know, we might go home and just think, hey, if I just name and claim a meal, someone's going to prepare it for me. That is not what this passage is about. It's about the Passover. Wake up. Come on, 11 o'clock people. Work with me here. Give me something. So let's start here. What is the Passover all about? Every year at the Passover meal, to this day, the youngest boy present is going to ask the oldest man present, why is this night different from any other night? And the oldest will respond with this set liturgy. This is the night when our God, the Holy One, blessed be he, came down to Egypt and rescued us from the Egyptians. There's three things we have to understand about the Passover. It was about the past, the present, and the future. It was about the past. God had delivered Israel out of slavery. But notice that the liturgy doesn't say, oh, delivered them, but says delivered us. You see, the past was relived in the present, and Israel once again found her identity and herself in this story. It's not about them, it's about us. God delivered the same people. But the Passover was also about the present. The main actions of this festival was sacrificing lambs, uh, and this is what happened the night before the 10th plague in Egypt. And these sacrifices atoned for sins so that God's wrath literally passed over the house of Israel. And you see, in the present, Israel understood they never outgrew their need for mercy and for atonement. And so they sacrificed lambs once again. But the Passover was also about the future. And having this meal and having this celebration, they looked forward to the day when God would ultimately deliver them from slavery, when God would ultimately liberate them from injustice, when God would establish his throne eternally in Jerusalem and create a new heavens and a new earth marked by a new covenant. So in celebrating this festival, they remembered what God had done, they reenacted it in the present, and they hoped for what God would do in the future. Now, if you've ever planned a wedding or a party or, uh, you know, an anniversary, uh, you have some sense of the magnitude of celebrating the Passover. Uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus records that in 66 AD, you know, roughly 30 years after Christ died, 
upwards of 255,000 lambs were slaughtered for the Passover. And he estimates, you know, you probably feed about 10 people per lamb. And so he he says there's probably around 2.5 million people in Jerusalem for that Passover. You can't know if that's entirely accurate, but it gives you a sense of the magnitude of this event. And so we should hear a sense of urgency in the disciples when they ask, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It seems like to them, have you forgotten, Jesus, what is going on and how busy the city is? Where are we going to do this? How are we going to keep the feast? But once again, we see this unusual authority of Jesus. It all unfolds according to his word. The room, it's already prepared and furnished. The table is already set. And this is meant to draw us in. On the very night that the lambs are to be sacrificed, Christ says, no, I haven't overlooked the Passover. Because he doesn't just plan to observe it, but he plans to fulfill it. Read uh, verses 17 through 21 with me. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The Passover is the major plot of this part of Mark, but... We can't escape betrayal. It's pulling us forward. It can't be swept under the rug. Jesus actually exposes it at this table. He says, look, it's not abstract. It's not an acquaintance. It's actually one of the 12. It's a close friend. And we know it's Judas. We've already been told that he's conspiring with leaders to to betray Jesus. Judas knows it's Judas. But the rest of the disciples have no idea who it is. And just the mention of betrayal evokes sorrow for them. Because that's how the brain reacts to betrayal. They began to be sorrowful because just the thought of betrayal can cause us pain. And a question bubbles up almost most naturally from them. And they each take a turn asking it, is it I? I can't imagine that was very reassuring for Jesus. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And all 12 of them say, is it I? It's almost a reflex. When Jesus mentions betrayal, his closest disciples intuitively know it could be one of them. They're in this vulnerable space. They're in the company of trusted friends. They've had a big meal. Their defenses are down, and so their pride is caught off guard. You see, pride would never let you ask, is it I? But vulnerability would. And that's why they're so brutally honest with themselves. Is it I? Well, it could be. It could be you, it could be me, it could be us. And then Jesus stresses the intimacy of this betrayal. He says, one who is eating with me. Remember, eating in the ancient world had deep significance of loyalty and friendship and love. One who is eating with me. And then he says, one who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. Doesn't get much closer than that. And then he says, as it is written. Judas freely betrays Jesus. He was not coerced. And yet Jesus says this is also unfolding exactly as God designed it to be. And free will and predestination, if you want to debate that 
whatever. It's a mystery we're supposed to hold together in tension and it's beyond our pay grade to solve. Scripture simply presents both. But the point is, if we knew or suspected that someone was going to betray us, our hearts know and science is confirming, we would withdraw. We would be guarded. We'd try to protect ourselves. We would try to avoid opening ourselves up to the potential of being hurt or facing long-term trauma. But not so with Jesus. Even though Jesus knows he's being betrayed and will be betrayed, it doesn't rewire who he is. It doesn't change the way he acts with his betrayer. He still shares a meal with Judas. In fact, he responds to it by showing more hospitality than he does anywhere else in the gospel. He doesn't withdraw from being close with his disciples, but he invites even more intimacy, even more connection, even more fellowship. Let's move on to verses 22 through 25 to see this. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Uh, much like our Sundays, the, the Passover celebration, the Seder meal, is a liturgical evening. Uh, year after year, it involved the same food. Uh, you'd crack into the matzo, which is a, you know, a stiff bread, and uh, you, you'd do that to identify with the poverty uh, in Egypt. You'd eat the bitter herbs to identify with the suffering going on with Egypt. You'd, you'd eat of the lamb to identify with your need for its atoning sacrifice. And as the evening unfolded in its planned order, it helped you both remember what had happened in Egypt and participate in what had happened in Egypt. The same scriptures were read in the same order. People responded in unison with the same words. And up until a point in the evening, everything would have uh, unfolded as was familiar and according to plan. But then Jesus takes this sharp right. He reinterprets the Passover and no one present would have missed it. Look verse, uh, closely at verse 22. Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to him. I know right now you're thinking, wow, Alistair, deep stuff. Does it sound familiar, though? He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. It's exactly what Jesus did, word for word, when he multiplied the, the fish and the loaves on those mountainsides. Mark's trying to draw us in and say a miracle's taking place here. But like the miracles before, it's not about the food, it's about something more. You see, when Jesus, uh, on the first mountainside, when he miraculously said, uh, fed 5,000 people, what was he doing? He was showing that God is going to feed Israel with salvation, that, that man does not live on bread alone, but by the word of God. And so on that first mountainside, he feeds the nation of Israel, but then he does it a second time, and who does he feed? The Gentiles. You see, if, if the miracle on those mountainsides was God is going to feed us with the gift of salvation, this miracle at this table is saying, here's how he's going to do it specifically. What's the miracle? Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body. Then he takes uh, the wine, has them drink it. And you'll note he does this first before explaining what, what he's doing. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That's a very sneaky thing to do to a kosher Jew. 
Jews do not drink blood, let alone eat meat with blood in it. And then to hear that this cup represents blood, it's offensive. Blood symbolized life. You honor life by not eating or drinking blood. What is going on? You see, on one hand, uh, the disciples in that room, they knew the shedding of blood, that having sacrifices established the covenant with God, established them as the people of God uniquely. They understood that. But you don't drink the blood from the offerings. That's just bizarre. But Jesus, he's explicitly saying that this wine, which symbolizes his blood, the very essence of who he is, his very life, must enter into them. He is saying, unless you have my life in you, you will not be a part of the covenant. And the disciples would be scratching their heads. What are you talking about? We're already the covenant people. We already are the people of God. Aren't we celebrating this Passover because we keep the covenant? But Jesus is not talking about the old covenant. He's not talking about what God did way back in history when he delivered uh, Israel out of Egypt. He's actually talking about the future that they anticipated in keeping the Passover. He's talking about when the new covenant would come and establish something profoundly different than the old. The prophets of Israel, especially uh, Jeremiah, promised that one day God would make a new covenant. Just like when he had brought them out of Egypt, but this one would be entirely better that would make the old look obsolete. In this new covenant, Jeremiah says, God will forgive sins once and for all. No more need for sacrifices. God. God would remember sins no more. And his people would no longer need to live by the letter of the law because the law will be written on their hearts because God will give his spirit to every single person in the covenant. Not just some, but all. So the miracle that's taking place at this table is that God will take Christ's body and blood and bless it and break it and give it to the world to establish this new covenant. In the past, the Passover, as we read in Exodus, was just for Jews and those who uh, were circumcised and joined them. No visitors allowed to observe. But now, like the feeding of the multitudes, Christ opens up this new covenant for the world, for all people and all nations, irregardless of ethnicity or gender or background. He'll die not just so that some can have life. He'll die not just so that Israel can have salvation. He will die so that the many can have life, so that the whole world can have life. And at this table, at this supper, on the evening that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in Jerusalem, as many as 255,000, Jesus is declaring that he is the only Passover lamb that matters. Jesus is saying that this massive nationalistic event of the utmost importance, this event that defined who Israel was, is actually just his shadow. It's really about him. He'll give his body and blood to make atonement. He'll die to give life, to give eternal life, to give abundant life to any and all who sit and eat with him at his table. Now, for the disciples, I doubt in the moment they could comprehend what's going on here. This would have been beyond their framework to a degree. But the real scandal is not so much that Jesus invites some kosher Jews to drink blood and eat his flesh. 
The real scandal is who Jesus lays his life down for. Look at verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You'll all fall away, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. In a few weeks, we're going to get a whole sermon just on Peter in this. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. But he said empathetically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And take note of this. They all said the same. While Judas may be the only one who explicitly betrays Jesus, every single disciple falls away. Every single one. And here we see an equal and opposite uh, reflex appear. When it came to betraying Jesus, these very people asked, is it I? And now they all vow that they would never fall away. They would never deny Jesus. But they do and they will. Did Christ really die? Did he really give his body and his blood to forgive them? Those who couldn't even stay faithful to him. Uh, last year, Martin Scorsese uh, released uh, the historical drama Silence. And have you, any of you seen Silence yet? A great movie, right? Great movie. And I found out he had actually been working on the script for 25 years. And it's no surprising that it's a masterpiece. The movie, uh, it follows two Jesuit priests who travel from Portugal to Japan uh, and experience firsthand the horrific sufferings Christians faced in Japan during the 17th century. And I'm not going to give you any spoiler alerts, so don't worry. Uh, one of the characters they encounter is uh, Kishijiro. And he starts out as a drunk because he had been apostate. Kishijiro uh, and his family had been captured by the state. And the state of Japan gave them the option. The emperor gave them the option. Renounce Christ and live or die. And so Kishijiro of his family had to go first. He looks at this little plaque of Christ on the ground and he steps on it and renounces Christ. But then his family goes and all of them refuse to renounce Christ. And Kishijiro has to watch his entire family be slaughtered. Unsurprisingly, he gives his life to drinking and he's a wreck because of what he did and what he witnessed. Yet slowly over the movie, Kishijiro, uh, his faith restores. He builds a relationship with the priest and he even confesses what he's done and over time asks for forgiveness and the priest accepts his confession and absolves him. Yet it doesn't seem to change him. He tramples again on an image of Christ. He spits on a cross to save himself. At one crucial juncture, he even betrays a priest who helped him uh, for 300 pieces of silver. And then Kizijero has the audacity to return to that very same priest every single time, confess, ask for forgiveness, and then only go on to do it again. You see, Scorsese uses this character to ask a really crucial question, not explicitly, but in every single viewer's heart. Should God forgive him? Should God forgive this man yet again? Here's the thing. I fear we might be more like Kishijiro than we dare admit. If you watch that movie and you see the horrific sufferings portrayed in that movie, it's hard to know what you would do. 
How is it that the disciples in Mark can oscillate so quickly from asking, is it I, to vowing that they'll never fall short? Because every disciple, including you and I, has some of Kijijero in them. This is the experience of our hearts. This is what it means to be a frail human. We know how unreliable we can be, yet at the same time, we want to totally deny it. Do we not quickly mask our shame with pride? Do we not attempt to cover weakness with strength? Do we not uh, cover uncertainty with boldness, only to fall short of our own expectations, let alone of God? Can we handle being in a vulnerable space with Jesus where we admit weakness? Is it I that's vulnerable? That's admitting that we are not what we want to be or know we should be. You see, the invitation from Christ is not to have certainty about our strength, but to have certainty about our weakness. He wants us to accept that we're weak and we're frail and that we're vulnerable because he wants us to be real with him so we can admit, yes, we need you. We need you to be our Passover lamb. We need you to atone for our sins. We need you to do something that we can't do on our own. We need you to give us life and to give us salvation. Or will we say, no, I've got it all together. Not me. And we create a facade, and sometimes we do this purposely. Sometimes it's just something that happens over time. We get so used to just having to not think about these matters and live everyday life that over time we start to think that we're perfectly fine, decent, and good people. And we might even begin to convince ourselves that we are, but we do not convince Christ. We do not convince Christ. And here's the scandal. Christ still offers his body for us. Christ still dies for us. Christ even forgives those who fall away again and again and again and again because you can't outrun his grace or his forgiveness because there is no earning your seat at his table. See, the many who benefit from Christ's death, the many who are invited to eat and drink the bread and wine are the very people who fall away. And so Jesus, he opens up his table by laying down his life, not for the faithful, not for the resolute, not for the strong, not for those who have it all together, but for the weak, for the outsiders, for the frail, for the sinful, for the hypocritical, for the betrayers, and even for his enemies who crucify him. Betrayal, as brutally painful as it can be, as traumatizing as it can be, did not and cannot overwhelm Christ's love for us. Nobody deserves a seat at the Lord's table, and yet the unworthy can find their placemat there. Jesus, he's kept a seat at the table for you. He's offering you a seat at the table so that you can be a part of the great banquet feast that lasts forever. The metaphors God uses in Scripture, if you want to know his love, look at a wedding. Look at the love between them. That's a glimmer of God's love. But if you want to know his presence, look at the reception. God describes his presence as a banquet. He's saying, I have a seat for you in my banquet of eternity. Christ says, I'm not going to drink of the vine again until we're all together in the kingdom of God. But to sit there, you have to receive the miracle that took place on the cross. You must drink Christ's 
blood and, and eat his body, not as one worthy of what is being offered to you, but one that needs it to live. The poet uh, from the 16th century, George Herbert, reflects beautifully upon this in his poem, Love Three, not to be mistaken with Love One, Two, or Four, and I'll read it to you. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. George Herbert beautifully captures the way in which we refuse Christ's invitation to his table and the way we try to excuse ourselves. You know, maybe you feel like you could never be good enough to follow Jesus. You could never be good enough to deserve a seat at that table. Like the poem, you cry out, I'm an unworthy guest. Or you feel this inner tension. I can't take this from you. It's too much. Just let me be a servant. And yet Christ says, no, I'm inviting you as a guest and not just as a guest, as a friend. And when you sit at my table, I'll serve you. Perhaps you feel like, no, I need more time to figure this out, to clean up my act, to, to know more, and yet the invitation always comes when we're not ready. Christ still invites you saying, sit and eat with me. He invites you as you are, not as you will be. But maybe you don't think you could possibly need the gift Christ is offering. You didn't ask him to die. You don't need him to die. Sin isn't that big of a problem that he had to atone for the sins of the world, let alone yours. You don't see weakness in your life, let alone a need for God. You've never felt the elusive God-shaped hole that Christians always talk about. A friend of mine, she has chronic pain, and yet looking at her, you would never know it. At times, however, her pain can be totally debilitating. And yet at other times, she has to stop herself in the middle of the day and ask, Am I in pain right now? Pain is such a normal part of her life that she doesn't always pay attention to it, let alone identify it. But her baseline, her normal, is not normal. It's pain. She might not appear to be in pain. She might forget she's in pain, but that doesn't nullify the pain. It's not suddenly gone. You might not recognize your need for Jesus or the hunger that's meant to lead you to his table, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Maybe, maybe your normal isn't normal. And all the, the same, Christ invites you to his table and he says, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Who is this Jesus that's offering us a seat at this great table? This is God himself opening up his life to us in the most intimate way, sharing himself with us entirely, even when we've betrayed him, even when we fall away from him. He is offering a seat at his banquet for eternity, but to receive it, there's a catch. You must let him forgive your sins. 
You must let him serve you. You must let his spirit reside in you forever. Are you willing to take a seat at this table as one of God's undeserving friends? The great miracle that took place on the cross, it has joined itself uniquely to the sacrament of communion. This is our Passover. Christ is our Passover lamb. It's not a once a year festival, but a once and for all reality that we can celebrate again and again and again and again as the people of God. And whenever we come to the table of communion, like the Passover, the past comes flooding into the present. We're comforted and strengthened in the reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. And yet we also taste of the future at this table. We taste what it's like to sit at the great banquet feast even now as eternity comes rushing into the present. The reformer John Calvin wrote, If anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I would rather experience it than understand it. The miracle we so desperately need is offered to us again and again in this bread and wine, the miracle of Christ's body given for us and his, his blood shed for us. And when we share in the sacrament of communion, we are participating in his very life when we receive it with faith. We might not fully understand how, but we can experience it. So will you accept what Christ so freely offers?